had the incredible opportunity to um, actually meet with uh, uh, the director of that ministry, the founder of that ministry. He's a brilliant guy, graduate of Harvard University. He's an attorney. And um, his name is Hauk, Gary Hauk. And uh, just through some circumstances, uh, I got to meet him for dinner with four or five other people. It was an amazing time. And I was so impressed with Gary because he, I thought, well, he wants to meet with us because he wants to raise money. He didn't say anything about money. He talked about prayer the whole time. And uh, they're going all over the world. Uh, human trafficking is something everybody wants to solve. And almost every young person who, gets, who loves God and feels calls a ministry, well, you ask them, what do you want to do? I want to go out and solve human trafficking. Of course we do, but the problem is it's really wrapped up in the legal system in all of these countries. And unless you have law enforcement involved, you cannot stop human trafficking. You can, you can perhaps have places where the girls can go once they get out of it. But it's a matter of the, the law enforcement and the legal system has to, has to act. And that's what Gary does in his organization. They go into these countries and they, they, they work with the legal system of the country to not only human trafficking, but human uh, 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 situations where, like, you know, you'll hear a lot of ministries talk about digging wells and creating water. That's a big thing, and we love to give to that. But what they often don't think about is that the women who go to the, get the well get raped on the way in some of these countries, and law enforcement in some of these countries doesn't do anything about it. And so Gary and his group go in, and they go in, and they appeal to law enforcement to begin to care about the problem and, 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 and they, they're making changes all over the world. Uh, a gentleman called me the other day. This is Mission Spotlight for the month. We're going to be doing this every month, of spotlighting a different ministry that we give. We have a program called Go 2021. 20, Next year it will be Go 22 that supports, we're at least up to 13 ministries that we support. We make pledges to them. We give those pledges regardless of whether the money comes in or not. We're going to keep our pledges to these people. And um, I think we're around 30 thousand dollars a year. So we want you to get involved. A, 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 a gentleman called me. I don't know if he's in the room now, but I wouldn't have revealed who he is anyway. Uh, called me a few days ago and said, I, I, want to, I, want to, I have some money I want to give to a mission, he said. In other words, he wanted me to recommend a mission to him. And I said, you know, I'll be glad to do that. But let me tell you about how our missions program works. We need some people who will commit to the program, and then we can support everybody on the agenda. And when we go beyond that budget, then we can do more things. Because I know that we can do more for particular ministries, and I know the kind of things that pull at your heartstrings. Human trafficking pulls at your heartstrings. Anything involving hungry children pulls at your heartstrings. So we understand that. And if we can raise our missions budget, we will give more to those things as well. Another thing that pulls your heartstring is our own ministry to kids with special needs in Compassion New England. So I, I explained the program to me. He so said, I never understood. I never understood how it worked. I, I never understood that you guys make commitments to people and you give whether we give or not. And so he very generously, he gave a, a nice donation to the overall program. And then he gave a donation to Compassion New England and a donation to the Happy Place. So he covered all the bases. So I want you to really strongly consider, if you have not done so already, is making a monthly pledge 
uh, no pledge is too small or too large, of course. So, but make a monthly pledge. You see on the on the screen here, and the best way to do it is to do a re, to recurring giving. Set up recurring giving so every month, because that's what we really need to do. We need to raise monthly pledges for to support the missions program of the church. And I don't believe God can bless a church that doesn't give to missions. Amen. I just don't believe He can. And uh, uh, we'll, we'll, as time goes on, we'll tell you about the different ministries that we're supporting. And thank you for your uh, beautiful, generous support. Let's get back into the Word today. Um, we're in the second sermon in a series called The Strategies of Satan. We did three sermons on the rediscovering God, so I felt only appropriate that we rediscover Satan as well. <laughs> Uh, I'm reminded, uh, uh, today's sermon is called The Strategy of Self-Determination. I'm reminded of a Texas politician who asked why a certain candidate had lost an election. And he said it happened because he forgot the first rule of knife fighting. The first rule of knife fighting is there are no rules. Satan has no rules. He doesn't fight fair. He's not going to give you an even break. He's a liar, a deceiver a diabolical angel of light who comes to you in a thousand guises, tempting you to disobey the Lord. He's a lot smarter than you are. He knows your weak points. He knows how he can attack you at any time of the day or night. He doesn't fight fair. He'll attack you, after you just after you got a cancer diagnosis. I can tell you for sure, because I've been there. He'll, he, he, uh, what is the mark of his diabolical work? Uh, is we face opposition from the devil when all, all kinds of times, when there's unusual or repeated temptation, when there's an attack from an unexpected source, when there, when there are delays that hinder us from obeying God. All this is in the Bible. When there are enticements to doubt God's Word, when there are circumstances that produce unusual pressure upon us and temptations to sin, uh, w- I may talk more about this last next week, but there's, we're in this time in, in, in culture when, when people are telling you that whatever your inner self tells you, you must, you must obey it. Uh, you must obey that inner self, or you're, you're not being true to oneself if you don't obey the inner voice. And what a dangerous philosophy. <laughs> That's a very dangerous philosophy that your inner, inner message must now become your identity. I would say you better check it out. <laughs> Do a little, have a little discernment about what your inner voice, and I mean your inner voice might tell you that you're a, a turnip or something. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> be careful with that inner voice because we know the devil works that way. He entices us. He, 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 he entices us with temptation, especially in an area that's never troubled you before. It's just out of the blue. All of a sudden you have some weird desire that... Where did that come from? Bitterness toward other people. Enticements to turn away from God's means of grace. Excuses for your lack of spiritual growth. Critical thoughts about other people. He's an accuser of the brethren. He, even now in this room, I'm sure somebody has had a critical thought about things I've said in the last seven or eight minutes. I would check out where that critical thought is coming from. And, and uh, he... Uh, he especially likes to give you what we call an unfalsifiable narrative. Like, uh, it's like the, if the, when the last piece of pie is gone and someone asks you, did you eat the last piece of pie? It's unfalsifiable. Unless, there was, unless you have cameras in the kitchen. 
that, that records everything. It's unfalsifiable. You cannot prove that you ate the last piece of pie or you didn't eat the last piece of pie. It's like, it's like when did you quit beating your wife? <laughs> that question, you know. It's a, it's a, they call it a Kafka trap, you know. And the devil is really good at that. Let's go to the, we're going to go to the temptation of Jesus Christ. That I think most of you are kind of familiar with that temptation. It's been depicted in a few movies and other places. And we're going to read the text and we're going to take from that text who this tempter is and, 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 and what he does and how he does it. Who he is, what he does, how he does it. And, and, and before it's over, I'm going to explain why I called it the strategy of self-determination. Let's read together. And Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. That's a really important sentence. I wish we had time to unpack it. But Jesus was setting in motion the means for our righteousness. Our righteousness by grace. He was setting that in motion because he didn't need to be baptized. We needed to be baptized. So he, he was our substitute to be baptized for us. And so when, we, when, we're baptizing, when we're baptized, we're just affirming what Jesus already did for us. That's a little bit of that. There's a lot more, believe me. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said to him, if you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacles of the temple and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And, uh, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve, shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So today we're talking about the strategy of Satan and we're going to talk about who, the what, the how of our struggle. I want to use the temptation of Jesus Christ after his baptism as the story to teach us these truths about the dark forces that seek to unsettle us, deceive us and drag us away from God and every idea that is wise and winsome. We want to end up today showing how the adversary uses the lure of self-determination and self-exaltation, subjectivity and independence from God, or put another way, transcendence, a transcendent source of knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. He wants to pull us away from that. Let's talk about who he is and how he does it. Who is this adversary? Now, the scripture says in the book of Isaiah, chapter 14, How are you followed from heaven, O day star? 
So he had his origin in heaven, son of the dawn. How are you cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low? You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Always keep in mind that Satan is a wounded foe. Always keep in mind that he is a bitter uh, personality. And he is full of anger and bitterness because he wanted God's job. He wanted to take over heaven. He did not want to be under God's authority. He was once a beautiful angel and had a high position in heaven, but it wasn't enough. He saw life through the lens of power. He saw the world and he saw the universe and he saw heaven through the lens of power. Uh, let's look at how he approached Eve to, to affirm that. And you know this verse very well. You won't die, he said to Eve, after she, they'd had a conversation about eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be open as soon as you eat, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. So I understand that it sounds very archaic and old-fashioned uh, and uh, out of touch to talk about the devil in an age of science and discoveries and technology. And that would seem to be something we don't need anymore. But let's talk. First, let's talk logically. I think we can see and know that at the bottom of evil, just like at the bottom of creation, we find an, an intelligent mind. That's when we, we believe in intelligent design to create the world. But also, when you look at evil, I think you, I, I'm convinced you also find an evil intelligence at the bottom of it. You think all that, but all that was behind the Holocaust was Hitler? All that, all that was behind slavery was economics? Or all that was behind uh, racism and, uh, was, was, uh, was uh, uh, not only economics but uh, human, human prejudice? You think that's all that was behind it? Uh, what about your addictions? You think all that's behind your addictions is your is your parents weren't nice to you? Do you think that's all that's behind what what goes on in your life? If so, I believe you're naive. There's an intelligence behind all these evils. You're, you're, you might say this is ludicrous. That's because in those days, on the olden times, you would say people chalked up sickness and mental illness to the devil and supernatural forces, just like they chalked up everything as belonging to God. If, light, if lightning struck you and killed you, people would say in the olden days it was an act of God. Many things we know are not supernatural because of science, and we're thankful for science, and we're thankful for research, and we're thankful for that. But to, 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 to pin all of the evil in the world on natural forces, I believe, is naive. I, I really do. Yeah, that's, that's worth clapping over and saying amen to. <laughs> uh, do you believe in God? <laughs> so why wouldn't it be logical to also believe there's a supernatural evil being? If you believe there's a supernatural good being, so it's, it's arbitrary to say, I believe in personal supernatural good, but not personal supernatural evil. So, logically speaking, evil is logical. Now let's talk about empirical, or what we can see and observe. Look out in the world and check out the latest news and media reports. Look at history. Uh, 
let me ask you, is there evidence for a supernatural bad? Just look at the atrocities. It happens all the time. Read about, read about some of the things that parents do to their children. Burning them with cigarettes, pouring boiling water on them, starving their child to death. Uh, there's got to be an evil superpower. Uh, Mao Zedong probably killed more of his uh, citizens than any other dictator in history. And uh, the, way, the way it happened with him, uh, he, 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 he was a peasant, but yet his father worked very hard and, and, and uh, became, actually became a landowner in China. And uh, he was a very intelligent young man, and, and much and his father his father was very mean to them. His father beat him frequently, and but he got very interested in um, in Western philosophy and Western culture. So he would sneak books into his room. If his father caught him reading a book, he would beat him. So th- th- there you got a you got a, a a formula for somebody who's not going to be a very good person, right there, right? And, uh, but what, but what, what's, what's outstanding to me about Mao Zedong is uh, he, he, at age 24, he began to read the uh, writing of Karl Marx. And he saw in uh, communism a revolution that would work. Because it, it, it went to the poor and the oppressed who were already dissatisfied and encouraged them to revolt. And so he began to go through the villages in China and gather the peasants together. And what he would do, he would take Marx's theory of oppression and oppressed, and he would, he would ask them, who in your community is doing well? Let's spot the people in the community. Well, if you have two chickens, if your neighbor has three, then they're an oppressor. Literally, they would do that. And so he would, he would inspire them to kill their neighbor. He would inspire them to kill the landowners in the area. And he did this all over China. But, but that's not the part I wanted to get to about Mao Zedong. The part that stood out to me is, as I was studying about him the other day is uh, on one occasion he went to a village and watched the executions that he had inspired. And he said, I was changed forever from that day. He said, I felt, and he actually used this word, I felt ecstasy watching people slaughtered. And when he became the supreme leader, he said, he said, if we have to kill half our citizens so the other half can live better, it will be worth it. Don't tell me that didn't come from hell. Don't tell me that didn't come from a supernatural evil force. And I could give you so many other examples where people, to their peril, ignored the supernatural force and, uh, and how it worked out. Um, uh, early psych- psychology and, um, and uh, uh, um, psychoanalysis was, was, was just an, much of it was an attempt to, to ignore the supernatural world and believe that everything you did was merely a result of your own, uh, uh, own experiences in life, your own inner psychological drives, and, and if we could just fix your inner psychological drives, if we could just find out, you know, deal with what your mother did and your father did and, your, and uh, you know, all that crazy stuff about the Oedipus complex and all that stuff that Freud taught, and if we can just, if we can just do that, but, but if you follow the history, man, it, it was disastrous. 
It was disastrous. I'm sure some of you studied uh, uh, the, the Burlingham family that Anna Freud, his daughter, uh, brought to live with her and, and applied all this psychotherapy. Four children, two of them committed suicide, and one of them became a raging alcoholic. And, and her protege, Anna Freud's protege, was, a, uh, was the counselor for Marilyn Monroe, and he put together this elaborate system of, 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 uh, of helping her, actually brought her into his home. What she needs, he said, is a family. Uh, Marilyn Monroe never had a family. She needs a family, so we're going to be her family. So they made her a family, and within a short time, she killed herself. I'm not saying these people weren't well-intended and they were really trying to help people, but you cannot solve the problems of humanity. I don't believe you can solve the problems of humanity unless you believe in a transcendent good, a transcendent God, amen? And unless you believe in also in transcendent evil and you address the transcendent evil forces that cause people to do things that are totally illogical. Let's talk about theology, too. How can we say Jesus was right about most things, but he was not right about the devil? You know, Jesus taught it and assumed it, but he was just a man of his time. It was just, it was his historical vantage point. Jesus' identity doesn't come from his historical vantage point. It comes from his identity as the divine son of God. If you don't believe that Jesus is who he said he was, Everything's at the bottom. Everything at the bottom is Jesus' identity, that he was the Son of God. And if you don't believe Jesus is who he said he was, you shouldn't accept much of anything because that means he's either a lunatic or a pathological liar. Andrew Del Banco, a teacher at Columbia University, certainly no fundamentalist Christian, believe me, or he wouldn't be at Columbia University, <laughs> wrote a book back in the 90s called The Death of Satan. And he begged us to once again now, now he believes Satan is just symbolic of course and he believes it's just a symbolic but he, he begged Americans to once again believe there was evil in the world he said this he said we have a big problem in society if we either believe Satan is the whole problem in the world or he is no problem no evil then everything is just a product of people's psychology socialization and inner drives If you relate this back to Jesus' temptation, notice with me, Isaiah 14 says that he is described as the one who laid the nations low. Satan plays on the national stage, believe me. He is very interested in the demise of nations. Hold on to that thought. We might come back to it later. Let's move on to when the adversary attacks. Here's when he attacks. Every time there is progress there's going to be a counterattack. I have noticed, and I, I've thought about this for hours since we had a recent baptism service, and I thought back to the hundreds of people I've baptized over my ministry, and I've noticed something. And I, I don't know what I'm going to do about it because it really, it, it really stresses me out. I've noticed that many people that I baptize I never see them again. I never see them in church again after I baptize them. And I, I, I tried to think this through logically and would talk, I've, at least recently I talked to them. I said, listen guys, 
you're going to be baptized, please take it seriously. But now I'm beginning to think it's not because they don't take it seriously. But they're not ready for Satan to take them into the wilderness to, to test them. They're not ready for the test. They don't realize they have entered into a spiritual warfare when they stand up and say, I am a child of God. That there is a devil who hates God and God's children. And we've got as a church, I want you to pray with me and I want you to work with me. From now on, when we have a baptismal service, I want you to help me gather around those people that are being baptized and support them and love them and talk to them and get in touch with them and bring them into your lives in those days immediately following their baptism. I mean, I'm serious. The Bible says the kingdom of God is like a farmer who planted good seed in the field. But that night, as the workers slept, his enemy came and planted weeds among the wheat, then slipped away. When the crop began to grow and produce grain, the weeds also grew. The farmer's workers went to him and said, Sir, the field where you planted that good seed is full of weeds. Where did it come from? He said, An enemy has done this. An enemy has done this, the farmer exclaimed. That's how the enemy works. I know there's demonic delegation. Uh, He was not necessarily talking about what Satan does to you directly, but he's talking about also what he delegates to people who are willingly or unwittingly his instruments. When, when, you know, when, 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 when he spoke to the serpent back in Genesis um, and he prophesied to, that, that uh, he will strike your head, talking about Christ, who would come later, strike your head, and you will strike his heel. It was a prophecy to Satan, not snakes. But it was a snake that, that was doing the talking. So whether attacks are direct or delegated, there's a direct correlation to you being attacked every time there's progress. Every time you discover more of the love of God. And your value to him. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up in the water. I won't even read all that to you. You know he was affirmed by the Father. And so when you feel affirmed, when you, when you come to church and you have a wonderful experience. I, I learned this very early in my ministry. As you can imagine, when you do what I'm doing right now, there are some, there are some Sundays that uh, I don't leave feeling high and, uh, and great, but then many Sundays I do. Many times when the sermon's over, I feel I've unburdened my soul, I've been in prayer, and I feel, uh, you know, I just feel, hey, that really went well. I felt anointed of the Holy Spirit up here, and I feel great. And so many times, man, through my life, I've seen, I've seen the devil attack in those times. Um, I, I remember early in our ministry, we were pastoring a church in Westfield, Massachusetts, and after the service, we, in those days we had a Sunday morning and Sunday night. We'd usually have something going in the afternoon too. So it had been a long day. Sherry and I would finish the service and we're turning the lights out and a person steps out of the shadows. Now, when someone steps out of the shadows on Sunday night after you've had two services and you've been going all day and they ask you, how's it going? Or, no, no they, I'm sorry. They, they ask you, can I talk to you for a minute? It's not good. They're not getting ready to tell you what an amazing pastor you are. That's not about to happen. And this person that I had respect for just just lit into us and started telling us everything wrong with us, 
I, I don't remember all that he said. I remember he, I remember he accused us of building our own kingdom, whatever in the heck that means. I, I must have done a poor job because I, I, it's not my kingdom anymore. <laughs> and it was just, we were just, we, we were, I mean, Sherry and I were like 25 years old when we started pastoring that church. So we, we were like late 20s. We weren't, I, I didn't even know people did that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, and, and we, we went home that night. We were, I, I was very upset. I, was, I remember, I think Sherry was pretty upset. And, uh, the next morning, my brother coming, and I'm going to tell you this part of the story because it affirmed to me that, that supernatural forces were involved on both sides, God and Satan. My brother calls me, says, Phil, what's going on? I keep having a burden to pray for you. Amen. And then uh, three days later, I get a letter in the mail, and I know a few of you, I think, Craig, you would know Hugh Corey, Right? Right? former district superintendent uh, in, in, of the Assemblies of God. And there's a letter from Hugh and Esther Corey, and it said, Phil, he, he wrote it Monday morning, and he mailed it Monday morning. He said, I just want you to know that Esther and I are praying for you and Sherry, that God will give you strength. So the reason those two communications were important, it affirmed to me that what was going on in my life that time at that time, was spiritual warfare. What was going on was Satan was trying to discourage us. And he does the same for you, and he times it very well. He, many times after a service, in Sunday afternoon, one time I, I, I preached, I, I used to preach for a guy named Al Van Tassel, Craig probably knows him too, in, uh, in, in Springfield, Massachusetts. I'd love to go to that church. Al was just a, a great guy. And I used to love to go preach for him. And he, he would have me come in as guest speaker. And I preached. We had, we, again, Sunday morning, Sunday night, we had a great day in the Lord. I mean, it was great. I was feeling, like, great. I was feeling my ego was, was it's huge anyway. And it was, it was all full bloom, you know. And, and this woman steps out of the shadow. Now, here I am. I got, I got the motel key in my pocket. And I'm not going to tell you what she said to me. It's too embarrassing. But Sherry was a thousand miles away in Florida. And I'm, I'm alone with a motel room. And this lady comes on to me, right? Which doesn't, it's only happened to me. It's the only time it ever happened in my whole life. <laughs> so I was kind of proud of that moment, you know? <laughs> I mean, I don't have I don't have a problem with women coming on to me. I just you know, <laughs> you, why not? I don't know. <laughs> no, uh, thank God I was strong in my faith and I was strong in my commitment to Christ. A strong commitment, my commitment to my wife, and and uh, I told her to get away. So, but boy, you know, Satan is what a sneaky rat. What a sneaky rat. I like the acronym HALT. HALT stands for hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. Yeah. He comes to you also when you're, when, you're, when you're emotionally vulnerable. Anytime, every time you're emotionally vulnerable, Jesus had fasted for 40 days and nights. So I love that acronym, hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. You know, you know uh, Bill, be careful. I, I just heard you're driving an hour and a half 
each way, right, to work every day. Three hours a day is your commute for what? How long? Uh, Be careful, because you're going to be hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. (laughs) Satan knows your circumstances are causing you to doubt yourself. He knows the fear. You have fear that you're going to fail, like Jesus did. He knows you're insecure sometimes, and, and you're insecure about whether you're emotionally competent enough to succeed and doubting that you're loved. But I love the old hymn we used to sing, Standing on the Promises, I Cannot Fail. Listening every moment to the Spirit's call, resting in my Savior as my all in all, standing on the promises of God. So how does this adversary attack? He will attack you sometimes by force and sometimes by fraud, Spurgeon said. By might or by slight, he will seek to overcome you. Scheme means a plan of action. We talked last week about Satan's schemes, an elaborate and systematic plan for a course of action designed to achieve a major or overall aim. He has a major overall aim. We, we find a clue to his way of doing things in Acts chapter 5, verse 3, but Peter said to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to the light of the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the sale? I don't have time to tell you that story, but it's a couple that made that told the leadership of the church they were giving all the money from the proceeds to sell some property. And they didn't have to do that. God never makes people do that. But they lied. And because they lied, he has to confront them. And uh, what I want you to, and and of course, if you know the story in in Acts chapter 5, they actually dropped dead. I I assume they just had a heart attack at getting exposed. And, 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 and that, that's oftentimes when you, know, when you know that you follow the directive of Satan. It didn't seem that serious when, you, when it was private and a secret. When it was a secret, it wasn't a big deal. But when it got exposed, then it's a big deal, right? Yeah. Now, most of you, when you think of Satan, you probably think about tables levitating, Linda Blair, head spinning, projectile vomiting. But that's not how he works. It, he, he comes by cramming your heart full of ideas and thoughts and feelings and emotions. A heart crammed full of self-absorbed, self-protecting, self-exalting things, thoughts. That's what he does. Uh, we can make a deal with the devil and not even realize it when our minds are filled with some warped perceptions you know, Satan loves to get church members to project a persona of being all in, but secretly you have all kinds of reservations. You're being manipulated by the adversary. by filling. I don't know, or I don't really believe there was a physical manifestation of Satan for Jesus. I believe it was entirely in his thoughts. I believe it was entirely in his thoughts, just like it is with me when I'm tempted of the devil, when I'm attacked of the devil. You know, in Andrew Lloyd Webber's musical, The Phantom of the Opera, a young, that young chorus girl, Christine, received voice training from the mis- this mysterious musician she called the Angel of Music. And uh, he was a bitter man, a de- deformed since birth, only as the, only, known only as the Phantom, who lives in the sewers underneath the Paris Opera House. He, he falls in love with this obscure chorus singer, and starts privately tutoring her and demanding that she be given leading roles, right? And things get worse, of course, when Christine meets uh, 
her, uh, an old childhood acquaintance, Raul, and falls in love with him. Now the battle starts, right? The, the phantom decides to kidnap her, imprison her with him in his lair. What the girl thinks is a supernatural agent sent to be her beloved father is really a madman who wants to possess her for his own ends. The angel of music is evil masquerading as good. That's his basic plot. I want you to follow with me. I want you to follow with me Satan's ploy with with the devil. Number one, are are you really, uh, if if you're the son of God, turn these stones into bread. Now the father had just told him, you're my beloved son. He was standing on the word of God already that he was God's beloved son. He had already been affirmed and that rascal, the devil, comes along and says, are you sure you're the son of God? If, if, if you're really the son of God, then you can turn these stones to bread. Demonstrate how great you really are. And, and Jesus rebuffs it. Then he says, if you're the son of God, if you want the world to know you're the son of God, if that's what you want, then leap off the temple and you'll go floating down and the angels will catch you and everybody will know that you're the son of God. Notice, notice he's... Notice he's not asking for anything for himself. It's all, he's making Jesus feel, he's trying to make Jesus feel that you're the center of your world. You're the center of your world. It's, it, it's, it's whatever you do, Jesus, that's going to make this work. Not with that transcendent Father, Heavenly Father, that spoke out of heaven. Forget him. You don't need him. You just need you, Jesus. You don't need him. You don't need the church. You don't need, you don't need spiritual leadership. You don't need a pastor. You don't need brothers and sisters in Christ. You just need yourself. That's all you need. You are incredible, Jesus. Don't you know how incredible you are? You could jump off the temple and nothing would happen. You, you're, you're, the, you're the superman. You are superman, Jesus. You are something. Jesus said no, no, because the third request was what he was really after if you will bow down and worship me if you will become my subject then you can have everything you've ever desired that's the devil's ultimate goal is that you will become his subject and that you will if he will be remember he wants to be god and he cannot be God of the universe. He's never going to... He knows. He knows he lost that battle once and for all. He got kicked out of heaven. Jesus said, I beheld him as a lightning fall from heaven. He knows he lost that battle forever. He is done as far as ruling over heaven is concerned. But he has a chance with you. He has a chance to begin to control your life. But you have the power. You have the power. If he could force this on you, he would have already done it. But he cannot. He is as limited as your will. He's as limited as you want him to be. He's as present in your life as you want him to be. Or he's as limited as you want him to be. Paul wrote in one of his epistles, I fear that Satan, as with Eve, will draw you away from the simplicity that is in Christ. Jesus won over the temptation, and the Bible says, this is great, he returned in the power 
of the Spirit. Satan's purpose in coming to you is to destroy you, but God's purpose in allowing him to come to you is to turn to you into a fearless, powerful warrior. <laughs> That's right. God, Satan meant it in one way. God is going to let you get attacked by Satan. Get used to it. He's going to let you get attacked mentally, physically, every single way. He's going to let him frustrate you so you can become the man or woman of God that he intended to you to, and, and, and for you to be able to come into the power of the Spirit and go into the world and make everybody else's life better because you are full of the Holy Spirit. You're not full of self. But you're full of the Holy Spirit and not full of... He wants you to be full of self. The Bible says that Jesus went everywhere doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil after he put the devil in his place. So you want to be a self-absorbed subject of Satan, one who goes about always needing to crush others with your glory? Or do you want to be a beautiful, humble servant? Keep it simple. Do what is counterintuitive to your flesh. Stand your ground when the pressure comes and anticipate the new power that's going to come from, from God. What Satan meant for evil, God will mean for good. You cast the deciding vote. Jonathan Edwards, that famous preacher, New England preacher, who was part of, the refer, part of the Great Awakening in New England, he said the best protection you can have from the devil and his schemes is a humble heart. God bless you. You know, I, I think when I was a kid, we, there, we heard preaching about the devil all the time. And I think it's, you know, that like anything, church, things come in um, in waves. And, you know, I, I some people get a little creeped out by it, but how many of you, if you really, really think about it, you know there are forces in your life against you that are not just coincidence. They're not just because you have evil in you or someone else has evil in you, that there's an enemy who's out to get you. And, you know, we, we are so blessed that when we crack open God's word, he gives us strategy for how to resist the devil and how to defeat him. And, and if you read in Ephesians, it talks about putting on the whole armor of God so that you'll be able to stand against the attacks of the enemy. So let's stand across this room. And we're just going to, I think the first, the first thing that we always have to do is say to, the, to God, I can't do this on my own. I humble myself before you today. And I know that I'm not enough in my flesh to resist the attacks that the enemy has for me. God, we are your kids and we need you. We know that we are up against a dark force, that we're not fighting a war against flesh and blood, but something that is dark and beyond anything that we can imagine. And we thank you, God, that you've given us that armor that we can put on. We can take up the sword of the Spirit. We can walk in peace. That we can put on that helmet of salvation and be protected and be able to defend ourselves against what the enemy has for us. I thank you, God, that, that while he has plans for evil, you have plans for good. Just take that in for a minute. God has plans for good over your life. He is going before you to prepare a way. But the Bible teaches us we got to wake up and pay attention. Amen.
God, as your kids today, we're waking up, we're paying attention. We're going to be watchful. We're going we're gonna to be testing the spirits that come to us. When we have thoughts, the things that come into our mind, we're going to cause those things and force them to be obedient to Christ. As people who are mindful and watchful, knowing that the enemy has plans for our destruction, but you have plans for our good and our choices every day make a difference. We thank you, God, for what you're doing in this church. We thank you for what you're doing in our area. And we pray, Lord, that we would just be people who are prepared and ready. In Jesus' name, amen.